Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. Yes, sir. is out. Look at, look at this. Randy is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Welcome aboard. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Coming at you in another solid two hours of baseball talk. Always a reminder that, of course, just uh, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli, during the entire duration of the program. I answer and reply to all tweets. We have a nice discussion over the interactive portion of this program. A lot of stuff to get into today. I got four solid interviews I'm going to play a little later on. Got Felix Mian. We got uh, Dick Drago. We got John Nunnally. We also got Wes Chamberlain. So all different players from different types of eras. A lot of great stuff to get into. Of course, over the duration of the program, I want to touch on things like Rodney McRae running through the wall, Roger Maris and his legacy. But I want to start off by talking about uh, the Marlins and Jose Fernandez and the incident a couple weeks ago in regards to the Atlanta Braves with Fernandez, obviously, uh, may, may have uh, been a little bit wrong in this situation. But the one guy that I kind of want to go at, at being maybe not necessarily the entire culprit, but deserves his share of responsibility for what happened is Atlanta Braves third baseman Chris Johnson. And here's a guy that, in my opinion, you know, number one, looks like a, looks like a weak link the way he ends up charging in the, you know, once the uh, confrontation between Fernandez and, of course, uh, Atlanta Braves catcher Brian McCann happens. But here, here's the whole thing. I mean, Jose Fernandez, obviously, making his last start of the season because of the innings limit, he's shut down. It's it. He's, he's done for the year. Comes off with a ridiculous season where he ends up pitching to a low 2 ERA. He wins 12 games on a terrible, terrible Miami Marlins baseball team. And he's, he's going out there to finish up the season at home against the Atlanta Braves. And, of course, he goes out there and he throws a gem. I don't think anybody was surprised when he goes out there. He throws the zeros on the board, gives up just a one run in the seven innings, leading the Marlins to a victory against an Atlanta Brave team that's going to the playoffs. They're winning the NL East. They're in a great position. They've certainly been playing great baseball. They deserve all the accolades and everything that's involved with that. But... You know, what are the Braves doing? I mean, the Braves, obviously, you know, you know that sometimes uh, tempers flare. Sometimes you get a little upset. Sometimes there's a confrontation between 
uh, two teams over the course of the season, particularly division rivals. The Braves have seen enough of the Marlins, just like they have all their other division rivals. And eventually, you know, it comes to a head. You have a little confrontation like that. But, you know, in my opinion, the Atlanta Braves are so wrong in this situation. And it's not it's not that I'm because I'm not an Atlanta Braves fan that I'm taking this route because I've I've established on other shows that there isn't a Major League Baseball team that I dislike any more than the Miami Marlins. You know, for what they did to the Mets in 2007 and 2008, and obviously you can't fault them for that. They played good, but they taunted the Mets. They made like it was their World Series, and they got some certain arrogance to them on a team that wasn't any good. And then you throw in what owner Jeffrey Loria and team president Dave Sampson have done by totally dismantling the team on several different occasions. There isn't a team that I want to see lose any more than the Miami Marlins. So that being said, I'm not a biggest fan of the Atlanta Braves either, but in this situation, the Atlanta Braves are the culprits in this. The Atlanta Braves are the ones that are wrong in this situation. This is this is, this is a team that you're, you're playing in a Miami Marlins that's going nowhere. They got the worst record in the National League if it wasn't for the fact that they're playing coincidentally and at the same time as the terrible Houston Astros team that's rebuilding, they would be the worst team in Major League Baseball. This is a team that's going to lose well over 100 games this year. A team that's going nowhere. A team for the Atlanta Braves' perspective should be no threat to them in any way, shape, or form. They should do anything that the Miami Marlins do even if the taunting was at a point where it was ridiculous, does not warrant any type of retaliation, does not warrant any type of confrontation if you're the Atlanta Braves. And for what Jose Fernandez did, yes, Jose Fernandez has a little bit of a bravado to him. He has a little bit of moxie to him. He goes out there, he strikes somebody out. A lot of the Latin pitchers and you know, you've seen the Jose Valverdes of the world, the guys like like that that like to do their little jig at at the end of getting a strikeout. That you know, we're we're beyond that in Major League Baseball. We we don't look at that as something that's so insulting that's gonna warrant some type of retribution there. And, you know, the Atlanta Braves, a team that is so far ahead. I mean, what are they, 40 games ahead of the Miami Marlins? It's not even like this team is in the same league as the Atlanta Braves. So why are you going to get all upset over Jose Fernandez, who, let's be honest, is the one bright spot that the Miami Marlins have going through the 2013 season into the 2014 season. I like Giancarlo Stanton. He's a great player. He's the best player offensively on that team. He's got several great years ahead of him, and hopefully for the Miami Marlins fans, he's a guy that stays in South Florida for the next several seasons. That being said, Jose Fernandez has been their stud this year. Jose Fernandez was their all-star. Jose Fernandez went out there, won 12 games on a terrible team, pitched to a low two, two ERA, and probably deserved some more victories. He went out there, got more strikeouts and innings pitch. He's going to be the ace of the staff going forward. To me, the Atlanta Braves have no reason to make a big deal out of this. Jose Fernandez goes out there. Not only, not only does he upset the Atlanta Braves by the stuff that he's doing, but he's also shutting the Atlanta Braves down. It's not like the Braves are hitting him. And Evan Gaddis gets up there, and Evan Gaddis is a great story in himself, and I will write about this in Bases Empty blog, johnpielli.com, the whole thing. Evan Gaddis has been a phenomenal story, not just for the Atlanta Braves, but for Major League Baseball, where he's come from, the fact that he's gotten himself back into the game. Not only that, but he's become a very good player. Maybe next year becomes the Atlanta Braves starting catcher if Brian McCann leaves as a free agent. But, you know, Evan Gaddis you know, allows Jose Fernandez to get in his head, hits a monumental home run, 
a ridiculous shot that he ends up hitting. And you look at the results of it with Jose Fernandez turning back, looking, and probably saying something along the line of, wow, that was a shot. And for Evan Gaddis to taunt Jose Fernandez as he's trotting around the bases is one thing. But for Chris Johnson, the on-deck batter, to, to have anything to say at all to Jose Fernandez it is, ab- is absolutely ludicrous. You're looking at a guy uh, that, you know, Jose Fernandez is not going to determine the season of the Atlanta Braves. For the Atlanta Braves, anybody in addition to Gaddis, maybe Gaddis could take a couple steps and kind of watch the home run a little bit and kind of show up the pitcher a little bit. And if he does, which he did, it's even. Jose Fernandez may have showed up the Atlanta Braves for his reaction of a couple different strikeouts. Evan Gaddis gets up and hits a long home run, shows up Jose Fernandez. I think you're even. And you know what? If the two players, Fernandez and Gaddis, want to throw some words back and forth over it, that's fine. But for Chris Johnson sitting in a freaking on-deck circle to go out there and have anything at all to say to Jose Fernandez is absolutely meaningless and should not have been done. He is wrong in this situation, and he, he further extrapolates it after Fernandez in, in what's almost a scene from a movie that Jose Fernandez is going to go up against Mike Miner in his next at-bat and hit a towering home run himself, his first in the major leagues. Now listen, I'm going to give Jose Fernandez some credit because here's a guy that hit over 200 for the season, has shown that he could swing the bat. He is a good hitting pitcher, and I bet you that's not going to be the last home run that Jose Fernandez hits in his major league career. But for him to hit his first major league home run in that spot is something that's fabulous, is something that's outstanding. Like I said, it's a scene from a book or a movie. But he goes and he hits the home run. Of course he's upset. You saw his reaction in the dugout after the Gattis home run after he went back to the dugout with, by the way, the Marlins winning the game. So he goes up there and he hits the home run off of Mike Miner. You obviously knew that if he got into one here, he was going to kind of stand there and admire it, and he did. And you could say that Jose Fernandez was wrong for that, but in his own mind, that was his retaliation. That was something that he had built up in a dugout. He had to be taken into the walkway with the pitching coach, talking about the situation afterwards. You know he was upset over it. So that, listen, I, I could blame Jose Fernandez for, and the Atlanta Braves obviously did, with uh, Brian McCann confronting him at the, at the plate after he, after he crossed his home plate with the home run, kind of saying something along, listen, that was, that was wrong. You shouldn't have done that. Now, uh, once again, Chris Johnson, strike two, by the way, as Fernandez is crossing third base or about to cross third base, he spits towards his direction. Fernandez spits back. There you go, strike two. Strike one was, you know, for no reason at all, being the on-deck batter, having anything to say to Jose Fernandez after having Gattis's home run. Strike two is spitting in the direction of Jose Fernandez as he's around getting ready to cross third base after the home run. And here's strike three. After the confrontation between Fernandez and Brian McCann, Brian McCann, I think, did the right thing here. He, he felt like he had to send a message. He had to say something. It's not like he came out there swinging, throwing punches and pushing. He, he, got, he got into the face of Jose Fernandez. He took his catcher's mask off and said something. And I don't think it was derogatory. I think it was something just to stress the fact that what Jose Fernandez did was wrong. And, you know, Chris Johnson looks like a fool in this absolute spot when he runs from third base. Instead of running a direct path into or towards Jose Fernandez, if he had a beef with him, if he had a beef, he had something that he had to say from the on-deck circle and something he had to reiterate by spitting towards him as he was crossing over third base, he should have 
made a direct path to Jose Fernandez and confronted him right there. Instead, he does the pansy thing by taking this awkward path towards the side, around, going around the umpire before he finally says something to Jose Fernandez. Let's be honest. I've been doing a list of MLB clowns for the 2013 season, and guess who just got himself onto the list? Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson is there with Jordani Valdez being at the Mets. Chris Johnson is there with Carlos Quinton of the San Diego Padres. And, of course, Chris Johnson is there with Luis Cruz, who, by the way, doesn't have a job right now, and it probably doesn't deserve one after what he did for Team Mexico in the World Baseball Classic. But, you know, there's another clown. And Chris Johnson's a guy who I, I, I liked as a player. I think he's a good defensive third baseman. He hits for some power in a deep lineup. He kind of provides that sneaky type of threat, the ability to be a six or seven place hitter, to kind of hit that home run when you least expect it. I think he's a useful player for the Atlanta Braves and a good player. But he's added to the list of clowns in Major League Baseball. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Just a reminder, tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. Lots of different things to get into. I might want to touch on the bunning. I might want to touch on the whole silly thing that the Met fans keep saying out there. Like, you know, it's all right that uh, Sandy Alderson gets a pass, which I agree with. I think Sandy Alderson deserves a pass, you know, for what's happened so far. But that the fans that say, Sandy Alderson needs some time to put winning players on the field, but those same idiot fans say that manager Terry Collins should be fired for not winning right now, which I'll touch on in a little bit. But one thing I do want to get into is something that came up the, you know, the other day. It was an anniversary, I believe, a birthday of the legendary Roger Maris. And Roger Maris, of course, had a fine career in the major leagues, maybe not Hall of Fame worthy, but was obviously known for what happened in 1961, hitting the 61 home runs, the whole home run chase. And in the minds of many Major League Baseball fans, still holds the record for the most home runs done in a clean fashion. And Roger Maris, of course, uh, you know, has passed away. He's been gone for a while. Uh, his 79th birthday, which would have been for Roger Maris, came up this past week. Of course, a very clutch player and a winner. And those are things that I think people forget and don't really put with Roger Maris. You look at Roger Maris and you say, hey, he hit 61 home runs in the 1961 season, but first career he hit 260 with 275 home runs and 850 RBIs and only had 1,325 hits in 12 major league seasons. But here's a guy that came up and what we kind of forget about because everybody just wants to put Roger Maris and say, hey, he was a Yankee, he was known for that one season, and that was about it. But here's a guy that was draft uh, was that was signed by the Cleveland Indians in 1953. He made his major league debut four years later as a center fielder. Struggled a little bit, but was known as a guy that could have very well been an extreme power hitter, a guy that certainly could have gone into the middle of the team's order and been a guy that you would expect to be good for a long time. He was traded to the Kansas City Athletics during the 1958 season because of the history that the Athletics had with being kind of a training facility, a development program for the New York Yankees. There was talk then that Roger Maris was eventually going to be traded to the Yankees, and that was before anything even picked up between the two teams. And, of course, you knew that was going to happen. He kind of established himself a little bit uh, you know, hit, hit, you know, in 1958, hit 28 home runs, 80 RBIs, had a down season a little bit because of injuries, but was traded, of course, to the Yankees during the 1959 season. And that was a deal that those of you who remember sent 
Don Larson, who was the World Series hero, of course, with the per with the uh, the perfect game in the World Series. Hank Bauer ends up going to the Athletics with a couple of younger players, and of course, the rest was history. 1960 was an MVP season for Roger Maris. He hit 283 with 39 home runs, 112 runs batted in. And, of course, in 1961, he has that great season where he hits the 61 home runs. As has been told several times, he was had a lot of difficulty dealing with the pressures of the home run chase. The New York media, as cynical as it is right now, was still something that would, would put a lot of pressure on players. And they reported that him and Mickey Mantle were rivals and they didn't get along. And, of course, there was never any evidence to, to support the claim. Both, both Mantle and Maris, until both of their deaths, insisted the fact that they got along very well and were very close. But... You look at after the 1961 season, and that's something to be to, to look at. He had a good season in 1963 and 64. I'm sorry, 62, 63, and 64. It's 33 home runs, 23 with some injuries in 64, 26 home runs after that. After that, he had some injury issues for the next couple seasons and was traded to the St. Louis Cardinals as the Yankees were getting older. And I think they wanted to get themselves in a position where they were younger, so they started trading some of their older players. Remember at that time, now we're talking 65-66, the Yankees were removed from the World Series that they lost to the St. Louis Cardinals in 1964. So they're starting the, the, the digression. They're getting to a point where they got to figure out what they're going to do because there's no stars that they could go out there and sign. Free agency hasn't started yet teams aren't necessarily catering to the Yankees needs by handing over good good players in the prime of their career and some of the players of course that the Yankees had developed mainly Mantle mainly Whitey Ford you know guys like that were getting older and losing their edge as an AL pennant, pennant contender so he gets traded to the St. Louis Cardinals and the numbers that Maris put up in his two seasons with the St. Louis Cardinals were less than spectacular but he was an integral part of that St. Louis Cardinals clubhouse. That the Cardinal, the Cardinals end up in 1967, winning, you know, winning the uh, the NL pennant, beating the Boston Red Sox in the World Series, and of course the next year they they won the pennant again in the National League and lost to the St. Lu the uh, Detroit Tigers in a close series. In 1967, he hit 385 in a seven-game series against the Red Sox. Had a lot to do with the Cardinals being able to beat the Red Sox that year. Struggled a little bit, you know, actually struggled pretty much in the 1968 World Series, hitting 158. He retires after that. And a lot of critics in regards to baseball's Hall of Fame and, and you know, people that, that are against Roger Maris being in a Hall of Fame look at the fact that he only played 12 seasons. Look at the fact that he was less than spectacular in a regular season in his last two years with the Yankees and his two years in St. Louis. And you just say, listen, the guy didn't play long enough and sustain enough success to be a Hall of Fame type of player. And I think that's a valid argument. That's something that does make sense. But you look at Roger Maris and where he stands in Baseball Hall of Fame, the 61 home runs, the historic season that he had in 1960 and 61, the fact that he was a winning ball player. Let's understand that, that in 1960, the Yankees lost to the Pittsburgh Pirates in a World Series, but should have won. 61, the Yankees won the World Series against the San Francisco Giants. 1962, the Yankees won the World Series, beating the Cincinnati Reds. And of course, 63 and 64, they were in the World Series, losing to the Dodgers first, and then the St. Louis Cardinals. But 67, he's a World Series winner on a winning uh, St. Louis team. And, of course, we just mentioned the, the NL pennant winning team in 1968. This was a winning ball player. 
And it wasn't just a coincidence. This wasn't a guy that just happened to be at the right place at the right time. His influence not only on the field with his numbers, but in the clubhouse led these teams to victory. And, you know, unfortunately, he never got above 43.1% in 1988, which was his final year of eligibility. And remember, he got a a rise in the voting, the percentage of votes after his death in 1985. The percentage rose, which never got any higher than 32.4%, but stuck pretty much between 18.4 and 32.4% uh, from 1974 until 1985. And, of course, after his death, there's a lot of sentimental value put into it. The voters started to think about Roger Maris and say, hey, if there's any chance that we're going to honor this guy in the Hall of Fame, it's going to be now in the last three seasons of eligibility. And he went up to 41.6% in 86, 42.6% in 1987 and of course his final year of eligibility got 43.1 percent still the majority of the voters of the baseball writers association of america did not think roger maris was a hall of famer now the people that are against maris being a hall of famer obviously think that he shouldn't be given entry because of just because of the 61 home runs and of course they're neglecting the fact that he was a winner three world series three pennants a very clutch player and one of the best players in the game during the prime of his career. The only thing that I'll say that holds me back into saying Roger Maris is a Hall of Famer, the prime of his career was not long enough. He didn't go 8-10 to 10 Hall of Fame type seasons. He gave you 3-5. to five. And 3-5 to five Hall of Fame seasons is not enough to warrant a place in Cooperstown. And you know, listen, he's a Hall of Fame player whose career was cut short by injuries and the mental effect of the 61 home runs that had on him. But he has his place in baseball history. He has his place in Hall of Fame. And honestly, looking at Roger Maris, he's a winning player and certainly deserves to be honored from year in, year, out, year in and year out. So happy birthday, Roger Maris, who would have been 79 years, years old this past week. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Going to get in a lot more stuff after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is a place where teachers and students work together, creating a caring environment to learn and study based on the truth of the Word of God. Atlantic Christian is a wonderful school for your child to go to because the school has much to offer in training students to use their specific talents God has given them. This school may be small in size, but their heart makes it unique and loving to any student that wishes to attend. Come learn about our new lower tuition rates at our open house every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. MTR. Not sure what you want to eat? An omelet works anytime. How about a golden brown waffle with warm syrup? Augie's Omelet Waffle House and Grill is an Ocean City tradition since 1991. They're open year-round at 9th Street and Atlantic Avenues, just steps off the famous Ocean City boardwalk. Augie serves an affordable and expansive breakfast, lunch, seniors, and kids menu all day long. They know how to put a happy smile on everyone's face. Visit our website at augiesocnj.com or give us a call, 609-391-0222. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and come visit us in person at 9th Street and Atlantic Avenues, just steps 
off the famous Ocean City Boardwalk. Also visit Augie's Doggies in Smithville, 609-391-0222 and augiesocnj.com. More than omelets, breakfast, and brunch, it's happiness served on a platter. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to jump right into some interviews. We're going to start out with an interview I recorded with former Major League second baseman Felix Mian. And, of course, Met fans of the 70s will remember him, the slick-fielding second baseman, who was certainly an integral part of the team starting in 1973. But prior to that, he played with the Atlanta Braves from 66 to 72. And, Felix, you know, we get into a lot of different things. So hopefully you guys enjoy this spot right here. Former Major League second base. Good afternoon. It's John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League infielder Felix Mian. Felix, what's going on, man? Hey, John. Everything is fine. I'm here in, uh, in Puerto Rico. Um, I'm doing some stuff with, uh, with the Major Leagues and uh, just taking it easy and playing some golf. Nah, it seems like you're having a little fun, man. <laughs> oh, yes, I do. No, absolutely, man. Obviously, you know, you had a long playing career in baseball, a lot of association with the game, and, you know, you know probably enjoying you know the you know the, the later parts but uh, obviously he came up with the you know the Atlanta Braves in the late part of the 1960s tell us a little bit about you know what it felt like to you know make the major leagues and emerge on the scene with the Braves in the late 60s well you know I was I was blessed you know to playing playing baseball you know since I was a kid I wanted to be a baseball player and I was lucky and uh, blessed enough to to sign with the uh, Oakland A's and I got traded to uh, Atlanta Braves picked me up in the draft, and I was in the draft for, for in the in the uh, Atlanta Braves for quite a few years, uh, and went to the big leagues and uh, played seven years with the, with the Atlanta Braves, with Hank, Phil Negro, Orlando Cepeda, Rico Cardi. We had a great team, Tony Gonzalez. We had a very very good team, and I did enjoy my playing career while I was in Atlanta. No, and I tell you, of course, you were, you know, you just mentioned all the guys you played with, part of a, a very good Braves team of the of the 60s. You know, you end up making a postseason. You, you're part of the NLCS against the New York Mets in 1969. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the 1969 season and what it meant to be in a postseason with the Braves. Well, you know, we had a good team in Atlanta. We had a, we had a team, a uh, good hitting team. With, uh, with the, the best pitcher we had was uh, Phil Maker. But uh, when we went to uh, play the... Uh, Playoffs. That was the first playoff in, 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 in the National League, and uh, the Mets had a good team. They were they didn't too much, but they got the best pitcher in the in, in the big leagues. And I think I think that uh, that was a, that was that was the the advantage they had because we had a good hitting team. But you know, a good hitting team, they, if it, if it's a good pitching, they can handle the uh, the good good hitting. Yeah, and I tell you, it's always interesting. They say good, good pitching beats good hitting, but I'm sure you had to feel confident coming into that series. You know, with the guys you got, you know, the Aaron's of the world, 
I'm sure you felt like you had a good chance. If not, we're the better team. Oh yeah, we, we, I, I thought you know at that time that we were a better team than than the New York Mets, but that you know that year they didn't do anything wrong. They they they, they became the uh, you know became the miracle Mets that year '69 because they couldn't do anything wrong. They everything they did was good. You know, guys who never hit in in their post in the season, they in the postseason everybody started hitting. I think. That was the the reason the uh, New York Mets uh, won that year because everybody played together. Now, absolutely, and once again, this is John Pielli, and here former Major League infielder Felix Mian. Now, you know, of course, after the 1972 season, you get traded to the Mets in a trade for Gary Gentry. You become a Met, of course, for the, really the better part of the rest of the 70s. Now, tell us a little bit about how you felt to join the Mets and being part of the teams from '73 to '77. Oh man, you know, I I, I was. I was very, very glad to come to New York because it's, it was like coming to uh, to uh, Puerto Rico because we had so many Puerto Ricans in uh, in New York that uh, every time I came when I was in Atlanta, uh, everybody invited me to to the house with some rice and beans and you know feel like I was home. And then I was thinking I didn't have to hit against uh, Seaver, Matt McCusman, Doug McGraw, you know. It was a little plus because uh, they were the best pitching in, in, in the National League, and I coming uh, to to play with them. I, I was very happy because I know we had a good chance. Every time all those pitches pitched, we had a good chance to win. Now, and I tell you, one of the more important parts of the game is defense, and you obviously played a very good defensive second base. I'm sure. I'm sure the feelings were mutual between you and the Mets pitchers, as far as them appreciating your defense and you appreciating the fact that they were on the mound, right? Oh yes, very much, very much. Like I said before, I was blessed. You know, every every place I went, I was I was very, very, very glad that all the my teammates, management, and uh, from from Africa, they, they took good care of me. No, absolutely, and I tell you, you know, you're part of the 1973 New York Mets team, team that wins 83 games but wins the National League East. Now, tell us a little bit about that ride from getting into the playoffs and, of course, culminating with the World Series appearance against the Oakland Athletics. Well, you know, that, 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 that year we, we were, I think we were in, in August, I think we were in the last place yes. or the fifth place, you know, and uh, we had a meeting and everybody, uh, you know, pulling for each other and we had a meeting and since that, uh, that meeting, we start playing good. And, you know, when Doug uh, McGraw got that, 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 that thing that you have to believe, everybody everybody started playing good. Uh, everything went came together. And, and the last, I think it was the last day of the season that we clinched uh, yeah, the pennant. Yeah, I tell you, it ends up, you know, turning out. Of course, the Mets win the National League pennant that year, falling to the Oakland Athletics. But, you know, throughout your career, you were you were known, Felix, as one of one of the tougher hitters to strike out. Uh, tell us a little bit about your your approach at the plate and kind of what led to that reputation. Well, you know what happened. I was when I was in the minor leagues, uh, a manager that I have named Hopkins, he t- uh, teach me how to hit a, a choke up in my bat and just make contact because he, I had a good speed, and that's what I did. I I hit in second. I, my my job was moving the guy to from from second to third, or bumping the guy to to second base, hit and run, and that was my game. You know, I I knew I could hit home run. I was realistic, 
that I I, I want to score some runs because I knew home runs I would never make it as a good hitter, long ball hitter. But I knew I had to do things to help the club to win some games, and that's why that's what I did. I hit behind the runner, bunt, and you know put the ball in play. That's always good, and I I I I hate to get strike out, and that's why I think I never walked so many times. But I never did strike out uh, so many times either. Now, of course, that was one of the keys for you know what, what was a you know a very long career. Now, go, going back a little bit, 1970 with the Braves, you end up getting six hits in one game. Uh, you know, take us back to that day and what that meant to you, and you know how it felt like to get six base hits in one baseball game. Oh, I tell you, you know, I, I, I was uh, I don't know, I don't remember. I think was hitting. I don't know the team. I don't know if it was uh, San Francisco, but uh, when I had Five hits. It's a Roman Harris and the manager who always, who always feeling good. He said, "Well, Phoenix, I think you had it. You had enough. You had five hits. That's going enough. Don't worry about it. Just, just go and rest." I'm a guy. And Bob Pasquamonte was my teammate, and he said, "Phoenix, it's okay five for five, but if you go six for six, it's a lot better. And if you go five for six, it's good too." And I told Roman Harris, "Roman, I want to stay in the game. I don't want to get out." Why? I just want to stay, and I uh, stay. And the uh, my sixth time I bat, I got to under I probably second baseman. And I say, uh, you know, I, I took uh, Bob Aspermonte's advice, and I came out good because I went six for six in a nine inning game. And I think it's a it's a good for a funny for a, a, a kid who was uh, just uh, pointing duty like how they always said. Yeah. But, I always make contact, and I had a good chance making contact that I was going to get some hits. No, absolutely, man. It certainly had to be a big moment for you. Another moment happens in 1975 when you're with the Mets, and you know you end up getting uh, you know getting four four hits in a game. You end up getting four singles, but every every yeah. time it's followed by a double play that Joe Torre ends up hitting into. Yeah, Joe would say that that that, I, that it was my fault. No, it wasn't my fault. He hit the ball. Too high on the ground, and I had I didn't have a chance to break the double play. You know, if he hit a home run on the double, it'd be a lot better. But he he ground balls. The ground balls were I was the one supposed to hit, but he did. I, I tried to break the play, and I couldn't. And you know, Joe wasn't that speedster either. You know, he he wasn't. He never run that good, and that's why we he he into four double plays. Yeah, once again, it's John Pialli. I'm here with former Major League Second Baseman Felix Mian. Now, you know, after 1977 season, you go over to Japan. You play with the Tiao Whales for for three seasons. Tell us a little bit about your experience in Japan and, you know, what you thought about it, the whole thing. Oh, that, that was a very good experience when I went to Japan. Uh, I had been there before when I went off exhibition games when I, went to, uh, I was with the Atlanta Braves. And it was nice because... Uh, it, it was good because uh, I met a lot of people, good hitters, good people, and they always treat me good over there in Japan. And I, w- I want to go back to Japan, but, you know, I didn't have the chance. But uh, it was very good. In my first year, I, I hit good. My second year, I, I led the league in hitting, you know, and I, I think it's good. I, I, I was the uh, first foreign, foreign ball player to win the batting title in Japan. Now, now uh, you know, after you played, of course, you played up until 1980. Any any uh, inclination to try to get back and play play another season in uh, majors? 
I did, I did, but uh, at that time I had, a, I had an agent named uh, Jerome Rosenberg, and uh, he always said that he tried to get me a job over there, but I don't, I don't think he ever did because <coughs> the guy didn't be hitting him, him hitting him a, a year before in, in Japan. I, I knew I, I had a chance to play in there, in, uh, in the big league again, but I never had a chance to go over there and talk to anybody. Nah, that's a shame, man. Of course, Felix, you had a great career, and uh, you know certainly appreciate having the opportunity to speak with you. Thanks a lot, man. Uh, you oh. know, stay in touch. Maybe I can talk to you sometime in the near future. Okay, yeah, pleasure. Take care. Hey, it's me, Felix Mian. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed that spot with Felix Mian. Of course, if you're a longtime Mets fan, you certainly have some memories thinking about Felix the way he played second base. But uh, we're gonna take another break. Be back with a lot more stuff going on. Pass ball show on America's radio station. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is a family. Through one of the toughest years in my life, my ACS family stood beside me. My teachers were loving and supportive, and my friends shined God's love in different ways to make each day brighter. Atlanta Christian has a nurturing academic environment and is a second home to me. I am thankful for the school and family with which God has blessed me. Join us for Open House every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlantic Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online, 24-7, You're listening to the hottest internet station, MTR. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to finish up this hour by playing the majority of the interview with Wes Chamberlain. And Wes Chamberlain, of course, a longtime Phillies outfielder, a guy that has just recently written a book. It's going to be a series of books. I hope you guys get a chance to take a look at it. Uh, lots of stuff to get into. Hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League outfielder Wes Chamberlain. John Pielli, I'm here with former Major League outfielder Wes Chamberlain. Wes, what's going on, man? Thanks for having a couple minutes. 
First, we're going to start off by talking about in the game. You know, it's a it's it's a book in a series of books that you're going to be releasing. The first one has now been published. Tell us a little bit about what you know got into your your mind in regards to putting together a biography and kind of you know what inspired putting this whole thing together. Well, John, uh, you know, if you don't mind, first of all, I'd just like to give a few thanks. Uh, to, uh, thanks, God. Thank you know. It's, you know, I'm a Christian man, a God-fearing man, and so is that okay if I do that first? Oh, absolutely, man. Uh, this might be my kind of guy, man. <laughs> okay, thanks. I just want to, I just want to, uh, you know, give thanks to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and you know, I'm just uh, thankful for my wife and my my family, and and just grateful uh, for today, uh, and and have my health and have my strength and uh, all my activity and my limbs working, and even being in my right frame of mind. And uh, what kind of uh, pushed this uh, this author thing, this book, this book writer thing, was that uh, I ain't gonna put a number on it, but, but for about some years after retirement, uh, talking to people like yourself, uh, and then just people in walks of life, they was like, uh, well, hey, you should write a book. And you know, I was like, wow, you know, and it just kind of stuck. So then, I mean, finally. Um, I just sat down with an insurance man one day, met life gentleman, and I was sharing some stories with him, and he was like, oh, you should write a book. And I said, well, hey, you know, <laughs> maybe I should. I said, do you know about ways of going? And uh, it was a year and a half ago, uh, because uh, as soon as I got through speaking with the gentleman, uh, I found a, a book coach and uh, got her book. My name is uh, Judy uh, Cullen. Found her on the Internet. And, um Hey, uh, her book is just like talking to a kindergarten. And I followed all the steps and just took my time. And I, I believe I could have finished it faster. But, I mean, uh, you know, timing is everything. So I finished it this year. And, uh, hey, there you have it. And I tell you, what's great, what's great about, you know, anyone's particular life is that, you know, you could go back and think about all the different elements that are involved in it from growing up to, you know, going through school, end up be, you know, becoming a, you know, a professional baseball player, having success and getting through, you know, all that time and, of course, retiring. Uh, was there any particular instance or particular moment that you wanted to stress in your book?
So, you know, uh, it's, uh, you know, to just to encourage people that they read it and think about their life right where they are today and, and know that, hey, if it can happen to me, why not for you? You know what I mean? No, no, very true, man. Now, you know, as you were growing up, you know, you know, you know, living, you know, in the city obviously isn't that easy growing up. Um, did 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 you really find it that much harder to be able to, uh, you know, pursue, you know, your goals, which I would assume would be to play baseball professionally? I'm sure, you know, you came up, you know, tremendously talented and with the ability to do it. Did did you feel like there was there was there were really that many obstacles in your way for you to achieve your goals? Well, yes. That just starts with uh, with uh, with the fact living that I was, uh, you know, giving you an explanation of growing up in the city. You're easily persuaded uh, to be uh, indulged in uh, fast money. Fast money. With fast money, you can start stealing. You can start uh, robbing. You can start joining gangs. You know, you can start uh, illegally getting influence. If you see your buddy with twenty bucks and and you're not working, uh, you know, when you're supposed to be growing up just riding big wheels and tricycles and bicycles and things of that nature, uh, just running around, just doing what, what uh, child life is until you come into your teenage years. And so, you know, the average span of a minority in, in rural city job, uh, uh, job is like, Man, you die, they don't make it to the 25 years of age, you know, they die between 18 and 25, you know, and I don't have no percentage or anything like that, but, I mean, it's even worse of today. I mean, it was tough back then in the, in the 70s and, uh, in the 80s, because I was, you know, I was growing up in the 70s and the 80s. I graduated in high school in, uh, 84. But, uh, I mean, you, you, really, really could be easily persuaded to the gangs and things like that, because some of your buddies might join it. They're, not into involved in the things that you are. And so, you know, there it is, just hanging out. One day you're playing softball and football and baseball and basketball and all the sports, and then after that you're hanging out with a few gangbangers going over to uh, uh, gang-related meetings, you know, just, you know, just, I mean, just like right there, just hanging out at the park. Not even, you know, just kind of like, it wasn't forceful, but it was just uh, uh, kind of almost like influential and uh, habitable. No, very true. Once again, John Pielli with West Chamberlain. The book's called In the Game. You can get it on Amazon right now. And I tell you, I think it really comes down to this one question. I mean, obviously, you know, you, you, you talked about how the life could lead you in the wrong direction. What was the key for you? What, what was the key that kept you from totally going that other route, which I'm sure there's been, you know, many other people in your shoes that have made the wrong decisions and not – you know, you know, you know, not been able to achieve their goals like I believe you were able to. So, what what do you think was the key? You know, maybe to get through to somebody else to say, you know, what were you able to do differently? Well, I could say first of all, my mom was uh, uh, was not a God fearing person, but she was kind of what you would say a religious person. She made us go to church. So uh, she, and I can say this because I'm a grown man, and you know. God bless, you know, God bless her because she's uh, an eternal rest today. But I'm saying she made us go to church, and then I had other uh, uh, aunties that was like God-fearing Christians that was like, it was kind of like you said, uh, you see the example in front of you, you, you know what I mean? And so it wasn't just going to church, it was like a, a way of living. So having that Christianity uh, in my life early, uh, at about eight or nine years of age, 
you know, that was kind of like a foundation. And then I felt like uh, a conviction. I felt wrong when I got ready to do something. I, like, didn't want nobody to see me doing it because it's like, you know that's wrong, so why are you doing it? So it's kind of like uh, uh, trying to be a good boy but uh, doing the bad things. If you can understand what I'm explaining. Yeah, absolutely. You know? <laughs> so the, that Christianity, like I said, I, I wasn't like, I was in the, uh, that was established in my in my youth, but then I also had uh, older uh, brothers and uh, my uncles that was uh, more installed. So I had men in my life. Uh, I was I was coming up uh, as a as a baby. I had six older siblings, uh, two older sisters and uh, four older brothers. So I was a baby near my younger brother. His name is Nathaniel. He has passed, and uh, I, you know I explained that because he lost his life in Chicago. You know. Uh, at early age in uh, 1992. So that would be uh, added in uh, volume two, you know. But, I mean, having that experience and then having a loved one lost in the streets of Chicago and still uh, being blessed to pursue life and be here today, that was my foundation of Christianity. And then after making it to the major leagues, it was like just returning back uh, to the Christianity uh, foundation. I mean, just, you know, hey, receiving all of uh, the uh, blessings, but not feeling, uh, you know, really happy, but happy on the outside, but kind of hurt on the inside. So, and that's what I get a little bit more in depth because of, that's where the mentoring and, and everything comes in, uh, into play in, uh, in my story, John. Yeah, very true. Once again, John Pielli here with Wes Chamberlain, and of course, you know, at, you know, at the time, you know, you went through your youth and stuff. You ended up being drafted by the Pittsburgh Pirates. You go up through their farm system a couple of years in 1990, 1991. You were ranked, you know, fa fairly respectable, if not high, in regards to the Major League Baseball's top prospects. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, being drafted by the Pirates, going up through their farm system, and, of course, you ended up making your debut for the Philadelphia Phillies in, uh, I believe, 1990. Well, that was awesome. I mean, I got drafted out of high school first by the part of it. Uh, you know, I never expected that. I mean, that was a blessing. Um, my mom just told me, um, well, if you get enough, if they want you right now at high school, and if you're that good, then you can go to college and wait for three more years and uh, uh, see who drafts you again. You know, it was always about ed education with my mom. And so I said, well, okay, mom, you right. And went on to college, and then, lo and behold, the pilots draft me again. You know, so uh, at that time I was a little bit more mature, like she said. You know, it's, you know, John, it's, 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 it's tough when you're listening to your parents because you hear the things, but you don't really uh, take heed to them at the time. You know, you're like kind of coherent to it, but you're, you know, you hear me, but you're not listening. Yeah. And that's the same thing I can say to my children today, right? <laughs> no, I told you that. Yeah.
lo and behold, there was a waiver going there in 1990. Uh, the Pirates was uh, in the playoffs back to back 20 years ago, since the last time they made it. And man, I wind up uh, getting caught on the waiver wires because of the strikes and the Phillies. About uh, 11 teams claimed me, but the Phillies was the was the first one. And whoever claimed me had to bring me to the big leagues, and that's what I was known as the waiver going there because that was the first uh, transaction that um, that had. Uh, that was, was instituted under the new uh, agreement with the uh, uh, players' association and the owners of Major League Baseball. Yeah, it's very interesting, man. And, you know, you, you obviously, you know, once you find out about this, I'm sure, you know, you, you realize that it's kind of a revolutionary thing, you know, leads to obviously, you know, getting into the system the way it's set up today. But I'm sure it must have been exciting getting a chance to make your Major League debut with the Phillies that year, right? Oh, man, I, you know, I only remember what my grandma told me. That, and her name was Dorita Funbank. She told me, don't you ever let anyone tell you that you can't do anything or be anything. And I remember, you know, her saying that specifically because we were one-on-one. She said, you can be anything and do anything you want to be in life. And when I got on the plane with the team, it hit me. I mean, it, you know, it, it was like, wow, I was in the major leagues, you know, I'm here, finally, you know, surprise, wham, you know. Didn't know I was going to get there. Didn't care how I got there, <laughs> as long as I got there. But uh, I remember my first flight, and I sat back there in, uh, in the middle of the plane and uh, kind of turned my head to the window, and, uh, you know, just tears of joy just started streaming down my face. I had my seat by myself, and all I could do is just say, wow. Because my grandmother uh, passed in uh, 1987, uh, the year I did sign my contract. She might have passed in that fall, but, I mean, that right there, just, uh, this, uh, it, you know, that just, that, that's just something that, that's a part of life. You know, you remember things that strengthen you, you remember things that encourage you, and uh, not being uh, as, 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 as wise in, in, the, uh, in my religion and Christianity, those words right there was the ones that, uh, So we're running right up against our five-minute break. I got the rest of the West Chamberlain interview, plus lots more with Dick Drago and John Nunnally. So back in five minutes. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, America's radio station. 